You've met with a terrible fate, a game studies and video game culture podcast. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game study scholar from Germany. And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the website. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. This is actually the first time that Aaron is not around, as you, dear listeners, might have noticed in the intro. And what are we going to do, Dan? It's just the two of us now. I know. I, I feel. Uh, I wonder if, um, you know, the you know the Marx Brothers, famous comedy troupe. So yeah. when uh, when they were left behind uh, um, in the backstage of a theater, you know, they had been sort of choir boys and they were singing. And one day they were just left to their own devices. And their mother went back and they were making jokes and you know doing physical comedy with one another. And she just said, "The monkeys are out of the cage." And maybe that's what this podcast will be, Stefan. <laughs> Do you think we should like grab a blanket and throw it over the living room furniture and pretend like it's a cave? <laughs> <laughs> have yeah, have an all night uh, an all night video game sesh in the <laughs> in the warm blanket fort. Of course, dear listeners, this means that we're going to push our announced returnal episode back for one week. We just thought this might be the best idea since we want to, the three of us, we we all have a lot of things to, to say about Returnal and we want to do that when we're together in one episode. That's why we thought one more week doesn't harm. So we're pushing that back and instead we're restructuring our uh, schedule a little bit. As you know, at With a Terrible Fate, we believe that knowledge should be accessible to everyone. And especially when it relates to analyzing and appreciating the stories of video games. And that is why this very show is free and independent. You won't encounter any advertisements and you won't run and hit your head against a paywall. And instead, we rely entirely on your support. So if you wish to contribute, then we would be most humbly grateful. If you would go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. Our main story today is about a topic that we barely ever talk about or think about these days. It's about pandemics. Pandemics and how they are constructed in video games and what these constructions actually mean. In order to discuss this subject, we've invited a good friend of mine and a precious colleague on the show, Dr. Arno Görgen. He works at the University of Arts in Bern, which is in Switzerland, as a cultural historian. And I may mention here that we've worked quite a lot together in the past. We have recently published an anthology, for example, on illnesses in video games. I'm mentioning this here because while the book is primarily in German, it does have some very intriguing English texts in there. And it is also open access. So if you check out the link in our show notes, then you can simply download the book without being charged anything, just in case you're curious. But most importantly, Arno is also currently working on another book about the constructions of pandemic and the, the permeating narratives of pandemics in popular culture in general. And I'm very pleased that he's here with us now. Hi, Arno. Hi, Stefan. Is it still necessary that we define what a pandemic is, considering that in these trying times, we're basically living in the midst of one? Uh, that's a funny question, because uh, I don't know, maybe two years ago, I, I would have said, of course, we have to define uh, this 
weird medical terminology to people, but everybody knows what a pandemic is right now and what a, um, I don't know what's the English term for uh, incidents or... Yeah, incidents, I think. The, yeah. For these things, uh, we, do, we don't need any definitions anymore because it has permeated into uh, pop popular or collective knowledge. Very much so, yes. I sense that there's sometimes still a confusion between pandemic and epidemic. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but an epidemic is usually like an outbreak that happens in a somewhat spatially confined area. So it can be, it can be in a region, it can be a country. Whereas a pandemic, as by, you know, this suffix of pan, means it goes all around the globe. It's everywhere. Yes, exactly. That's uh, perfectly defined. Yeah, then we have some little bit of like public service here directly at the beginning of this interview. And the sentence that stuck stuck with me while I was while I was preparing this interview was this occasional utterance nobody could have anticipated that a pandemic such as this corona pandemic would happen, which is obviously not true when you ask experts from the field of epidemiology and virology. It has very much been expected that sooner or later something like that is going to happen. But at the same time, I also realize that we are confronted with pandemics all the time in video games. Video games seem to have almost like an obsession with pandemics. Would you agree with me there? I'd say uh, the obsession is with popular culture in general. And it's obvious you have pandemics uh, through all uh, eras and ages Speaking of the plague, or I don't know, tuberculosis is is around since uh, ten thousands of years, and it is a pandemic uh, that spread all over the world. So, illness, uh, disease is something that that accompanies humanity since its beginnings. It's obvious that we talk about uh, illness, about pandemics all the time, and it's obvious that it's. Uh, part of popular knowledge and uh, of popular culture to memorize these things and uh, to keep uh, some important aspects of pandemics in mind. Yeah, to negotiate them, often also in the forms of, um, of metaphoric engagements. I was thinking of the probably most widespread, literally <laughs> the most widespread pandemic narrative which would be the zombie apocalypse, right? Yeah, I'd agree to this. I'm not sure if this is something that just happened in the last 50 years since uh, Romero's Night of the Living Dead. But um, right now, the zombies are the, the uh, most widespread uh, plague in popular culture, I'd say, yes. Why is that, I was wondering? Why is it that we have this parent drive to always engage with with viruses, with zombies and, and the tales that come with it. What makes it so fascinating, I wonder? I think um, concerning video games, there are three logics uh, you can identify in this context. The first one is the logic of the market, that is developers consciously or unconsciously orient themselves to pop cultural trends and pick on what is selling well in the media or what is popular. That's one thing. And the second one is that is somewhat connected to this. I mean, you notice uh, 
The German sociologist Niklas Luhmann speaks of pop culture as a social memory. And one basic idea is that only what is communicated is collectively remembered. So there are uh, successful memories that are particularly suitable for being disseminated. And uh, pandemics is such a concept. And the third logic is one of game development and game mechanics, I think. A pandemic can be reduced quite well to very few aspects, us versus them, the transmissibility of the disease, and a specifically epidemiological perspective, namely the idea or the uh, social construct of the pandemic, meaning not its biological reality. It is uh, about society and the demands placed on society. And all these points make it interesting for video games because this complexity-reduced view of disease as uh, something that's happening in a society can be programmed quite well, uh, to put it simply, and it allows for free spaces within which stories can be told uh, quite good, like the hero's journey or conflicts and so on. Yeah, the hero's journey, the common trope that in a pandemic, the social institutions fall apart. They fail us in popular culture narratives and video game narratives now. And it is down usually to the protagonist to combat this pandemic, which is a very iconic trope. It reminds me of a neoliberal imperative, if I may say so. It reminds me a bit of often also the tale of the American dream of the average Joe basically rising to the challenge becoming a superhero or super soldier or whatever, because for some reason he or she is immune, right? And then fighting against the pandemic in a very active role. This seems to me like one of the, one of the essences of pandemic narratives in video games. And it is because this is so condensed into this one conflict, me versus the rest, uh, that makes it so accessible for video games. It's easier to program, how to say, it sounds a little bit weird to program an egoistic uh, point of view uh, in contrast to an empathic and more uh, social complex uh, system within you have to uh, within which you have to interact with the rest of society. It's easier to 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 um, kill them all than to help them all. Yeah, because you usually have the situation as is epitomized in the zombie apocalypse where you don't fight um, the virus as such, but you fight the mutated humans because they are they are somewhat, yeah, they are turned into something almost non-human or even straightforwardly non-human. It seems to me that the virus in a video game is often something you can point at with a shotgun. I think I'm gearing towards this idea that in the stories we tell ourselves about pandemics, we often have the opportunity to fight back. We have the opportunity to fight against the infected. Whereas now in this corona pandemic that we are in, we're confined to passivity. The best thing to do is just not to do anything, basically. Wear your mask, stay at home. You know, it's quite the opposite of this active, empowering role of a hero in such a video game. 
what makes more easy uh, is also that a virus in our world is an invisible thing. It's something you can't grab. And in video games, you have the, uh, the infected as um, a sign for the uh, pathogen. Yeah, yeah. They they represent them. They embody them. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, it's embodiment. It is it is the concept yeah. of embodiment, right? And the thing is that during our pandemic that we are currently experiencing, we often have the problem that it seems that this embodiment is missing. That there are people who actually deny the existence of the coronavirus because we don't have this form of embodiment. Is it possible, I was thinking that, Maybe because we are so used to pandemic narratives where we see the zombies, where we see the affliction, and even in, in pandemics such as the plague, you know, where you have usually some form of external signs that this person is infected, that this just makes us more keen to assume that such an, a micro microscopic thing, which is not visible to the eye, just may simply not exist. Maybe that's not just a problem of uh, popular culture and its narratives of pandemics. I, maybe it's more uh, that we are living in a very visual culture and we don't have any concepts for for things that are that cannot be seen or. We know that they exist because, well, we have science, <laughs> uh, but um, it's very hard to uh, get a grip on something you, you can't see or you can't describe literally, and you have to trust on other people's uh, narratives, opinions, uh, well, also research. Um, and yeah, the eye is stronger than the word, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's a very iconic sentence. And I, I think that if we think of such games like Resident Evil, the earlier Resident Evil games, I very vividly remember always these first encounters with a zombie, right? You always have this, uh, this moment where you, for the first time, encounter the zombie. And it's usually... It's usually removed from the gameplay because it's like a small cutscene where you see that zombie in greater detail than you do later on in the game. Like establishing that beyond any doubt that this is real, <laughs> you know, that this pandemic, this zombie infection is real. And here's the physical embodiment of what that means and what it does. Yeah, and that's okay because we as a player or as a consumer, we agree to a contract with the developer that we play this game and we are willing to accept what's happening in the game as well as a confined reality. In this concept of a game, it's absolutely okay to, to accept zombies as a reality and to... Um, accept or agree on a scientific reality that's obviously uh, not um, true in our real reality, so to say. Yeah, yeah. And this distinction I find particularly interesting because when thinking about Resident Evil, it just occurred to me that we also often have this trope of some evil force behind a pandemic, right? And just to stick with Resident Evil, you have someone like Wesker. 
I don't know, was his yeah. name Albert? Albert Wesker or something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, evil scientist. He wants to like seize world domination, if I recall correctly, at least up to Resident Evil 5, I think. And uh, it's there's always some kind of intent. There's a creation. There's a, you could say, mad scientist behind this virus or behind this pandemic. And this is something that we seem to miss uh, nowadays, which is almost part of like, you know, conspiracy theories or conspiracy ideologies where you think Bill Gates in his laboratory has created the, the coronavirus. Um, it seems to me somewhat connected, right? This idea that there must be some kind of evil force, some kind of intention behind this virus. Yeah, and it's also interesting that uh, you have both. You have you have to have a reasoning or a, a cause for virus, which in most cases is science. But uh, there seems to, to have to be something uh, that uh, explains the the evilness of the virus. You know, you, you don't just have uh, um, the virus; you also have these weird, uh, otherworldly narratives about Wesker, or as in um, uh, the Evil Within Two. There's this yeah. this weird uh, thing that you you explain these things with science, saying you are just within the uh, the mad mind of some evil person, and uh, you you wander through the uh, the mad mindscapes. Uh, but it's not just that, because uh, there's also something more you explain, or it's often explained with uh, re religiously uh, connoted narratives, that there's something going on in the background that's uh, on another level above science. This struck me as particularly important because um, I know we spoke quite a lot off air about a plague tale, Innocence, right, which is a relatively small production. And um, while A Plague Tale is a game that prides itself on being um, historically, let's say, authentic in quotation marks here, as in it strives to present you with details about the world, about uh, France during the plague, um, that that makes it particularly authentic. And at the same time, it is imbued with a kind of religious narrative, a religious antagonism where you have, I, if I recall correctly, even like an end boss who's a, a priest or something and who summons those rats. So there is an evil force behind not necessarily the plague itself, but behind the way it spreads. Yes, and I think these... Um Conspiracy theories are something that are quite common, not only within the uh, context of pandemics and games, but in general in games, because it's, well, it's a welcoming narrative to say there's something going on in the background and you have to find out what it is. So go on and find out in this evil world. That's a, a reduction of complexity uh, that's easy to comprehend as a player in a very fast-running game uh, where you don't have the time to investigate on the game world or something. And it's, uh, yeah, it's something that uh, just uh, sticks into your mind really fast. Yeah, it's a reduction of complexity that video games use to be more appealing, to be accessible. And I would also also say, you, you stated this before, that it's not necessarily a bad thing because we need these kind of 
rules. We need this kind of accessibility, at least if you want to appeal to the mass market when you want to produce a video game. At the same time, I sometimes worry whether this profound reduction of complexity in such narratives also um, makes us more keen to accept such conspiracy ideologies. Yeah, that's uh, that's the the uh, most important question. Is there some uh, knowledge transfer from games to the player, and ex uh, especially in the case of these um, political or normative ideas, uh, that's an important question because it has an inf or might have an influence on our democratic education or on our identity as a being within a de democratic society uh, if you always think that's uh, that's me on one side and the evil government on the other side there might be but we don't know it and that's a that's a, a academic problem there might be um, a, pr a problem for um, a civic society yeah and it is also something that's often employed as an argument the other way around when we wonder what can we learn from such pandemic narratives. When we think of um, especially such approaches like uh, in The Walking Dead, where you have a zombie apocalypse that, and I'm only, I'm talking about primarily the Telltale series here, the Telltale video games. Uh, because cool I haven't one. actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, because I actually haven't seen the show. And I must say, I've only seen a couple of episodes and I appreciated the the Telltale games a lot more than I did the, I think it's the HBO series or the ABC series. But I was thinking in the context of The Walking Dead that it is an approach there that seems to push the actual pandemic narrative quite far into the background where the origin of the virus is, at least in the games, not really addressed. There is no cutscene at the beginning where you see a vial in a laboratory smash on the floor and then a monkey eating the contents and then all of a sudden the world is infected. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the, are the social dynamics evolving around these survivors and the moral responsibility, the obligations that they still have. I think this is a way in which pandemic narratives in video games can also be uh, encouraging to, to think about our own responsibilities. And I also think that's a, um, an aspect that's uh, pretty defining for horror in general. Uh, horror often takes place in confined spaces. doesn't matter whether these uh, confinements are zombies, which uh, close you in in a particular space, or if you go to, I don't know, a secret lab in the Antarctic, uh, Antarctica, or I don't know, uh, but uh, it's always this um, this um, creation of boundaries, uh, which uh, uh, reduce your, uh, yourself to uh, your humanity and your um, your interaction with the people around you. So we have to wonder who we are as humans and who we want to be and which kind of values and dynamics we want to preserve in the face of such a threat to our very society. And of course, um, what is it uh, that you fear most in your interaction with society? 
it doesn't come out of nowhere that um, in Romero's Night of the Living Dead, uh, racism is a very strong topic. Or in uh, Dawn of the Dead, some years later, capitalism is a very important topic. Uh, and so on. So um, it's always about uh, things that endanger ourselves and our humanity and our autonomy and our free will uh, to act in this world as we want to act. And that's also an important topic in all video games, not just horror video games. I think the first time where I consciously thought about the problem of race within the context of a zombie uh, narrative was when I played Resident Evil 5. At the time... Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. At, at the time, I must say, I, I hadn't started to uh, study game studies, I think. Um, that was when I was still working as a nurse, if I recall correctly. It's been quite some years ago. And I played this video game, and I, I just was overcome with this eerie feeling. Why am I here as a white dude mowing down these, like, hordes of black people that are in infected? You know, it just felt eerie to me and it was quite a debate at the time right i remember that well too um my feeling was a different one uh, when i played it i had this uh, weird feeling of um that it's a maybe smart um commentary on post-colonialism uh, it's the um, the natives that are infected and you as the white hero uh, come to save them all but at the same time it's uh, it's your people that are uh, just causing this disease in uh, within these uh, yeah um, within this uh, space of an african village and uh, you are part of the problem so to say i think that's a very uh very self-reflective or very self-reflective way of reading it. I think maybe I, I was too, uh, maybe I was thinking too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a, it's a very favorable reading. I, I would assume that nowadays Capcom would not do Resident Evil in that way anymore. Although, I mean, they still build on similar tropes with Resident Evil 7 with like this entire like hillbilly uh, narrative, right? Where the rural family is sort of the, the the essence of the problem. Yes, and it's very often this um, the idea of a not so well developed um, population in a um, rural region versus the um, highly intelligent hero that's coming from a city with an urban background. That's may, maybe also an aspect of this whole um, construction of us versus them. I don't know if that's a thing because most uh, development uh, developer studios are based in cities and not on the countryside. What, what do you think? I think it is the attempt to employ a very accessible axis of conflict. Um, might it be race? Might it be gender? Uh, might it be age? Uh, whatever it might be, um, those, I think, um, lean, lend themselves easily to antagonistic narratives where you can uh, construct one side as being heroic in some sense and the other as evil. But to save uh, Resident Evil 7 a little bit, um, the family 
as it is, is called, the Baker family, is also shown in their pre-infection uh, state at some point. So you can have some hints on their history, being a father, uh, being, a, being a mother, being part of a football team. I don't know what. And um, they are, again, an innocent uh, group of people that's uh, drawn into this evil world by science. Uh, it's, again, this family that's drawn into this world by an evil company. And it's always this, um, this narrative of uh, modernity as an evil influence onto the world. That also is an interesting point because this rural lifestyle is also often in something that must be preserved, must be protected. It is under threat and it is through such dynamics like urbanization, right? And um, many problems that we actually discuss in our society and in our political discourse are completely not applicable to people who live in a small village where there's a bus that comes by like twice a day, right? I'm quite curious how, how Resident Evil will handle this with the next uh, installment, which is going to be called Village, iconically, right? And it's, if I recall correctly from what they've shown so far, it seems that it will be a kind of village that's very um, mythologically imbued, but where there's also a kind of like underground laboratory that I would assume is again... Um, the source of horror that pervades the surface of the village. And tall vampire ladies and uh, werewolves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, we, we spoke quite a bit about horror and about Resident Evil. And to conclude the conversation, I would like to come to a, a subject that's often discussed in this context, and that is Plague Inc., obviously, a very iconic video game, a game that um, allows us to take on a different perspective, a game where we do not have to fend off the virus, although we do in a new modification. They modified, they brought out a new mode called the Cure. It's available since January 2021, which might have also been influenced by the fact that they suffered quite some controversy. They had been removed from app stores in China uh, in February last year. In March, they donated $250,000 to help fight the corona pandemic after they had come under fire. Uh, being criticized for having developed a video game where you basically take on the perspective of the virus. What kind of perspective is that for people who may not have experienced uh, Plague Inc.? What kind of perspective is this gaze of the virus upon the world? Uh, that's an interesting question, uh, and it's hard to answer. Um, it's a godlike perspective because you, you sit in your, I don't know, heavenly a laboratory uh, it doesn't look like a heaven, heavenly laboratory of course uh, it's more like a tabletop game i think uh, where where you have different um interfaces and you can change the dna of the game to uh, to increase the um infection rates or you can um bypass uh, human measures to spread the the, the virus to prevent the spread of the virus and these, all these things uh, which are um, situated very much in the uh, functional yeah in the functional uh, structures of all pathogens so you, what you have here is uh, you play with um, with different how how to put it um, maybe biological systems within a biological entity 
and you all you do is uh, try to build the uh, most deadly virus or bacterium or whatever to kill all of humanity and uh, that is done in a way that's very sophisticated very complex on the one hand because it makes use of these uh, systems and of these uh, mechanics in a very um, complex way and at the same time these uh, mechanics are very easy They are very easy to comprehend. They're very easy to follow. And this is what, uh, what does uh, make the game so perfect to, uh, to learn a, lo a lot about um, epidemiology or about uh, the biology of pathogens. And this is also something that maybe led to um, prohibiting this game on the Chinese market because it tells us very, very much about... Um, epidemiology, about public health and the measures that can be taken in the face of a pandemic. I could also imagine that it's just a very emotional response as well. If you consider that this, this pandemic that we're currently in originated in uh, China and hit the population extremely hard. And that in those trying times, which was, you know, like last year, February, that was when the entire thing was just about to like properly boil up that it might have seemed uh, almost cynical to play a video game where your goal is to spread the virus around the world and where a very appealing starting point is China indeed. And that's a funny thing because the game is quite old. It's from uh, yeah. 2012, I think, and uh, it has been successful some, uh, for some years. And in the last years, it uh, got a little bit quiet around the game and it was just uh, with the beginning of the pandemic that uh, well its uh, sales went went sky high and uh, it sold very very much in in every country and we have to consider also that uh, the company around uh, plague inc also uh, donated money before the pandemic to different Uh, institutions. So that's not something they, they haven't done before. And they have always been in very close contact, for example, with the um, Center of Disease Control, for example. Well, I mean, there's so many more things that we could talk about. I would love to tell the story of the corrupted blood incident in World of Warcraft, because I think that's a particularly interesting case. Um, maybe we should do that, do this briefly and just explore that as a As a, as a conclusion to this interview, because I think it encompasses so many interesting things about the constructions of pandemic in video games. The, the corrupted blood incident in World of Warcraft has been, that was many years ago, right? Yes, in 2005. 2005, yeah. Wow, okay. And it, you must correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall that there was a, a new installment of a boss of a dungeon And you could basically rush into this dungeon with your group of players, and then um, this boss would have um, a debuff that it would inflict upon characters, upon players that would fight. And it, is, it was called the Corrupted Blood because it caused them basically to be poisoned, so to speak, and to lose health. Now, this was not a problem for the players that were actually at the right level to go into this boss fight. However, 
What was not considered by the developers is that players can have pets. And if you have like your tiny cute World of Warcraft wolf uh, running around next to you and this wolf gets infected, then players put them back in their inventory and after they've been in this boss fight, they come out into the world and they open <laughs> their inventory again and summon the wolf. It might still be infected and might spread this corrupted blood to other players, to weaker players who would then almost instantly die because they don't have that many health points or hit points that they could survive this affliction. Yes, that's true. And uh, as I recall it, uh, whole cities have, well, uh, fallen to to this weird, weird um, plague, to this weird uh, epidemic. And after this incident, real-world epidemiologists took notice of this and started to research on the ways corrupted blood spread and how the denizens of World of Warcraft reacted to the plague. And they observed, for example, similar lockdown me mechanics as we do now in reality. And they noticed, for example, healers as first responders and people isolating themselves in, in quarantine. Corrupted blood enabled a lot of insight how society works within a pandemic. It was particularly interesting because it was, I think, not intended, right? Because it was an actual pandemic that just worked along the systems, the self-confined and in themselves meaningful systems of the game structure and just led to this proper accident that uh, I think is as close as it can get to a modeling of a pandemic by such a such a small little thing that has been overlooked, you know, which often is the origin of, of pandemics. And if I remember right, uh, there has have also been attempts to uh, to duplicate this um, this weird corrupted blood incident and to um, reproduce it by. Um, programming and another virus in a, well, in a um, controlled um, environment. Uh, but I'm not, not really informed how well that worked out. It is definitely interesting because we can observe this kind of behavior of how people evacuate the cities in a game that is usually designed to be social, withdraw into smaller areas, withdraw into the forests, avoid the main roads in order not to encounter other players. And ultimately, and this is something that I feel resonates very much with at least me and probably many others as well at the moment, a kind of cautiousness in approaching other people. This feeling of, hey, keep your distance, please. You know, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to be too close to you because you might be infected. I think this is something where the corrupted blood incident is eerily close to our contemporary experience of the corona pandemic. Would be interesting if there had also been some something uh, like what we call in Germany the Covidiots. Yes, there were actually. There were. I think I read this study, um, this study by epidemiologists. I'll check and then and then I'll link it in the show notes. And I think there was some mention in there of how people would intentionally get infected and then bring the bring the the virus or bring this corrupted blood uh, curse into other areas where people would just do it for the lols they would just spread it i think this is definitely a part of it it's hilarious <laughs> in the game yes <laughs> it shows right that that's what makes this 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 case so interesting because it it even shows such behavior where 
uh, under different circumstances, one would have said, wow, that's a really douchebag move. But then you realize that there are people who refuse to wear masks or luckily, I, I don't think it should be exaggerated because the vast majority, I think, very well understands the severity of the situation. But there are such people who like intentionally cough in other people's faces to annoy them, to upset them, to offend them. This is, again, not not the default behavior, I would say. But it does happen. And the corrupted blood incident um, basically showed precedence for such for such behavior as well. Anyhow, I think we could be talking about this for quite a while and we have to make more. it a wrap at this point. So thank you very much, Arno, for coming around. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you for the invitation. Okay then, shall we move ahead and do some side quests? Sounds like a plan. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we talk about really anything that's going on in video game culture and that is on our minds at the moment. And of course, it's been the most wonderful time of the year. It's been E3. And actually, last weekend already it started and dragged a little bit into, into this week. But we haven't spoken about it really yet, except for some weird, expect, uh, some weird predictions we made <laughs> at the beginning of our last episode. Which I think, I think we may have been right about a few of them. We've think, been, uh, yeah, we've been right about that there, is no announce, there was no announcement for a Nintendo Switch Pro. But that was... Right. That was pretty much clear because Nintendo already stated in advance it's going to be a very software-focused E3 for them. But yes. everything else, I think I predicted that it would that Microsoft would announce uh, the Elder Scrolls, the next Elder Scrolls title to be exclusive for PC and uh, Microsoft consoles, but that didn't happen. What also didn't happen is Todd Howard didn't take to the stage <laughs> in a robot suit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, you know, uh, look, we can't we can't be a hundred percent in our predictions. Although I feel there's some close. truth to that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it fairly close. Maybe he wore the robot suit <laughs> under his shirt. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's a very slim fitting robot suit. Well, but what did you think about E3? We just uh, spoke quite a bit with Anno Gergen about the pandemic. We know that the pandemic has severely affected an already struggling E3, which is arguably or has been for many years the most. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say not the biggest, but the most important uh, video game uh, event or the game, like gaming event or event in the video game industry. And in the last years, it has struggled quite a bit. Uh, last year, many people would agree that it fell rather flat, struggled to, you know, dive into the waters of yeah, navigating this pandemic. And this year, they kind of attempted to have a, a return to form. What was your impression? I think that it's, uh, like with everything after the pandemic, I think it'll probably be kind of a slow start, but I thought it was promising. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I, I felt that the energy was different and I think that people are ready to talk about new games and, um, a number of titles that we'll talk about, I'm sure like Elden Ring and the Breath of the Wild sequel, it almost feels like they used the pandemic as a quiet hiatus time. And this was, you know, Hey, we're still we're still around and we're actually moving things along quite nicely. So it did feel like, um, no pun intended, a breath of fresh air after a very quiet year for video games. Yeah, and I think that it is part of the the nature of this pandemic that the E3 announcements or the expectations ought not to be as high as they usually would be. Because we know that many video game developer studios had to go remote, they had to change their workflow, We've seen a lot of delays and would have been completely unreasonable to expect like a large batch of like fresh new announcements. I think 
that publishers for the most part also try to not overdo it with hyping people for the, these particular showcases. That may be them learning from the past as well, um, where hype got out of their control a little bit. So I think that, I don't know, what I've been seeing online um, on YouTube and in news articles and things, it, it feels to me like people were more appropriately prepared than maybe in the past. So still some disappointment as always, but I do think that, you know, it's the first, it's the first, uh, big convention after, um, after the pandemic, we're going to have to kind of go slowly out of the gate here, I think, but a lot of interesting titles. A lot of interesting titles, but one thing that stuck out to me that actually didn't have any games and that caused sort of a small controversy was the Take Two panel. This was basically announced as a as a keynote, and Take Two somewhat tried to communicate in advance. We're not going. You're not going to see any game announcements. They tried to temper expectations in that regard because, of course, they own Rockstar Games, right? People could. People could be misled to believe that maybe there would be news about uh, the next GTA, about GTA 6, which I would have never expected because notoriously Rockstar Games is always absent from E3. They do their own thing. <laughs> they just like they just put out like three, three screenshots at, at whatever point they want and the entire internet goes crazy about them. So they don't really need that kind of spotlight at E3, but they really didn't do anything regarding gaming announcements. Instead, what they did was a diversity panel conversation titled Play for All, which was which is a very interesting thing to do. It is, uh, for me, highly unusual that in the context of E3, a major video game publisher, instead of talking about things like Bully or, let's say, uh, Borderlands, right, and their, their big franchises, uh, completely going off track also way off path, let's say off the beaten path, what E3 normally is, and have a rather intricate in-depth conversation. I find it interesting too, especially since E3, when you really break it down, it's um, it's like an industry showcase event. You know, it's the equivalent of uh, Kenmore Appliances having a yearly convention where they show the new dishwashers. Really, yeah. I mean, that that's what it is. And um, to see a panel like that, Reminds me more of something like, uh, you know, uh, compared to E3, a smaller convention, something like a PAX or um, a more localized gaming convention, like maybe a South by Southwest where they talk about video game conventions or uh, uh, stuff I know, like Gamescom, right? Yeah. Where there are, yes, there's, there's the industry side of things, but there are also um, people there to talk about what goes on in the industry as well as the effect that that has on the games that are being created. It's interesting to see it at E3. I, I totally love that because at Gamescom, which is one of the, if not the biggest uh, video game uh, exhibitions in the world, right? With like, I think 300,000 and more people attending over the course of like three or four days. It has this fairly low key aspect of the Gamescom Congress where academic discourse would happen, where people would talk about academics, uh, and people from the industry and journalists would talk about, you know, exactly such matters like the society, societal impact about video games, legal considerations, business models, all these all these kinds of things that are not directly uh, interesting, let's say, for a mass audience. And I'm glad that they found this spotlight at E3. I am a little bit ambivalent about the way how they did it, because I think they 
you have to imagine like for also for you listeners out there who have not seen this this keynote this is literally we're talking about a zoom call here like a zoom call everyone sits at home the microphone quality is like so and so and people are just talking a bit about you know marginalized groups and so on which is in certain parts of the gaming culture at least unfortunately still a contentious subject they got quite a bit of trolling, some hateful comments in the chat as well. The response was not as positive as I think they hoped it would be. And one reason for why that might have been, I found in an article written by Stacey Henley from thegamer.com. She wrote, quote, But it feels like the panel stopped the music at a nightclub, turned up the lights, then grabbed the DJ's mic to talk about the importance of a balanced diet and the harmful effects of excessive alcohol consumption. You are right, but doing it in this way isn't going to endear you to anyone. On the other hand, if you gave the same speech on the street corner, no one would listen to you, end quote. That's the perennial double-edged sword with things like that, right? How do you use the platform that you have? And I, I completely understand what, what that quote is in reference to. And all I can, all I can say is that Maybe what they've done here is open the door for more conversations like that to take place at something like E3, where it's not just look at what we have to sell you, but let's take a step back and think about the impact of the industry. I think that would be really worthwhile at E3. So maybe I think that's probably the positive spin on it. But I do understand that many people going to E3 because of how it's set up are going to be taken aback when something like that happens. Yeah, I hope that this would open the doors for more conversations such as this. I'm all for it. I think it could be a little bit a little bit improved regarding the presentation, but this is like nitpicking. It's it's nitpicking, right. but the, the the conversation itself is super interesting. It is also a, a panel very much worthwhile watching. So, dear listeners, you can find it linked in our show notes, and maybe we can also do a panel there in the coming years. Yes, we E3, it. we're available. <laughs> <laughs> Just reach out podcast at with a terrible fate dot com. what have you got in your notes well i have quite a few notes um but what i wanted to start with is uh you know because we talk about final fantasy so often maybe it's worth it to start with the square enix panel Um, yeah sure yeah i so they uh announced this um partnership that they have with koei tecmo and team ninja called stranger of paradise uh final fantasy origin um, they also announced, um, I believe, a Life is Strange collection. Yeah, um, they did. They did. Yeah. yeah. So that's pretty That's pretty interesting, too. I'm all for remastered collections, getting everything in one place, so long as it's worthwhile. Um, but I, I found, just because of my own proclivities, that this uh, Final Fantasy Origin announcement was really interesting, primarily because I've lost a good portion of my life to playing Neo and Neo 2. And uh, after playing the demo for Final Fantasy Origins, which was available for about three seconds on the PlayStation Store, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it just is, it feels like Neo with a Final Fantasy skin over it um, in the world of Square Enix, which I, I'm absolutely excited for. And I think that uh, what Koei Tecmo has been doing with these games recently is, you know, they kind of get their hands into other franchises and put their um, put their kind of development code all over it. So they recently did uh, Hyrule Warriors: Age of Calamity, where you know they they just have a different kind of video game style. And what they've been doing instead of coming up with new IP for themselves, 
they've been kind of going to other companies and saying, let's partner up and we can make the game and fit it into your universe. So I think uh, all for it. The demo was a lot of fun. We'll see where it goes. But um, any any more Neo-adjacent property is good for me. So Can you give me a tiny impression of the demo? Because I I saw the announcement and I thought, okay, I appreciate the Final Fantasy spin on it. I'm not sure whether it actually does any good for the game to have Final Fantasy in the title. I felt like it was a little bit, I don't know, almost uh, dry from, from what I've seen. It didn't seem all too exciting for me. I would say the the trailer is very dry, um, especially especially the English trailer. Because they say the word, they say the word chaos about eighty thousand times in it. Yeah, I gotta fight chaos. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that actually, actually playing it, um, the gameplay is is really smooth. It's uh, it's very much like Neo um, or like a Dark Souls type, like like a Dark Souls mixed with Diablo kind of game where mm. you just sort of you go through a bunch of levels and you pick up new equipment. It's, it's a lot of farming and um, grinding and, and learning different play styles. So the, the gameplay itself was very fun. And then what they seem to be doing with the story is going back all the way to the first Final Fantasy game and giving a nuanced explanation for why these forces in the Final Fantasy universe are always at odds with one another. Mm. Um, hence, chaos being said eight million times. <laughs> So uh, I think that what what I'm excited for is that when they when Koei Tecmo was involved with Age of Calamity, they did something really interesting in that they made they they kind of justified a prequel by using their gameplay style, and I think that if they're going to be doing that, where they're setting up this sort of you know mythic origin for the Final Fantasy world using their gameplay style. I think that's a worthwhile endeavor. Well, I'm going to look into that. I mean, um, it, it didn't seem all too exciting for me, but then again, I'm also not very, um, very much involved in you know the the world of Dynasty Warriors and uh, Age of Calamity, uh, the Hy Hyrule Warriors, right? Was the main title? Yeah. That that is just uh, I, I've never played any of these games. I've always seen them, and I, th I thought like, wow, what is what is that even? <laughs> I can't even fathom. <laughs> it's basically just like some you just you just beat up like thousands of enemies, and I think it's yeah. a very specific kind of game. And maybe a big problem that I have is just I have never played it, and it seems like those are the kinds of games that you only really understand when you actually play them. They don't really seem to trailer all that well. I think you're right. I think the appeal comes in playing them. I, I would agree with you there. Well, one thing I really love is playing music because I'm, you know, I, I play the guitar quite a lot. And something that I found very interesting in the Ubisoft uh, conference, to shift gears a little bit, is uh, Rocksmith Plus. Because, you know, Rocksmith, this is actually, this is a very unusual thing, but um, it, is, it is a guitar learning software, really. It came out first for PS3 in 2011, and it is a... Uh, it is a software that allows you to plug your electric guitar or your bass guitar in. It allows you to plug it into the PS3 and then, you know, to play along to songs. And you basically have this kind of guitar hero vibe, only it is much yeah. more grounded. And it actually teaches you 
to play the guitar, which is, you know, different from uh, pressing buttons on a plastic guitar <laughs> controller. <laughs> so it is very much not not Guitar Hero, and you have to assume that you're not going to be able to rock through some kind of songs very quickly, but you need to go note by note, step by step, because you're learning an actual instrument. And Ubisoft announced that they would they would release Rocksmith Plus. They're turning this thing into a subscription service. Generally, I'm not in favor of subscription services, but I do understand that with a learning software such as this, it makes sense. A lot of learning resources are actually subscription-based. They added acoustic guitars to the mix, and most importantly, the function that you do not need a specific cable, but you can use your phone as a microphone, which is obviously necessary, oh. you know, for, for acoustic guitars, yeah. which is kind of cool because a lot of people have their phones already uh, readily available laying around on the on the table anyway. And if you can use that, then I think it just lowers the entry barrier a little bit to just pick up the guitar and just jump right into it. Um, it's going to be launched this fall. It's slightly overpriced, I think, at $15 a month, uh, $40 oh, yeah. for three months and $100 for a uh, full 12 months. I think they went a little bit overboard there, but who knows? Maybe when they launch, they will quickly see that the influx of players is not as much as they would hope it to be and reduce the prices a little bit. At least that's what I would hope. I wonder if they're if they're trying to take into account. Um, well, if you were to if you were to hire a real life uh, oh, guitar yeah. teacher, their lessons would be far more than fifteen dollars a month. Maybe that's their thinking, or who knows? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't really want to go to bat for Ubisoft too much with subscription services, but <laughs> I think uh, I think it's a it's a really worthwhile endeavor. I remember when that Rocksmith game came out on the PS3, and I I thought it was really uh, a really great alternative to Guitar Hero and Rock Band because it came out when those were the the only games that were being released, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. And uh, I, I never got into it though because I I just, I didn't have interest, but I'm trying to learn guitar now. So maybe, maybe oh, this wonderful. will be the time. We can jam together. That's right. Just as a tiny side note, the presentation, the initial release of Rocksmith, that was actually my very first interview as a video game journalist. I just realized really? that. Yeah, yeah. I just realized like, wow, that was in 2011. That was the time when I, when I first wow. interviewed a video game developer because they worked on Rocksmith because I was the only one. <laughs> I was the only the only news editor on the staff that was actually a musician. So I was sent there and that was my <laughs> entry point into doing interviews. <laughs> it's all full circle 10 years later. <laughs> well, I think... Um, just a few, a few kind of uh, honorable mentions that I don't have. I don't have too much to say, but I'm very um, interested in. Is uh, Stefan? Did you ever play Aragami? Uh, excuse me. Did you ever play Aragami? Uh, you mean? I guess not. Or, or even the paper folding, folding uh, paper? No, it's it's a it's like a ninja game based. <laughs> on, it's called Aragami. Okay. A. No, yeah, I so haven't. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> not worth talking about maybe but they announced a second one and i thought the first one was fun so um that came out uh with the xbox and bethesda release they went over um they went over a few new games uh, origami to me is it, it it's sort of in the graduating class of um ori in the blind forest like those xbox games that were sort of quieter on the radar but gained a, a, a fun following. So it's doing some interesting things. I'm glad that they got a second game. That must have flown by me because I do remember that. I've, I've watched the Xbox and Bethesda showcase and I'm just looking at all the titles they have announced here. It's quite a lot. 
And yeah. uh, that is just such a typical E3 phenomenon that there would be so many things that at the end of it, I wouldn't be able to remember something that was probably shown like as a 30 second uh, trailer or something that blasts, blasts a release date on the screen. Yeah, it just washes over you. You know what? You know what did that for me? I don't know if you saw the um, the inexplicable Vertigo video game that's Vertigo? coming out. Where was that? Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Oh, I do remember. Yeah, that. it it's I'm color me intrigued. Uh, it it was just a trailer that was really the. Uh, it, it may as well have been a trailer for a Hitchcock movie with all the the visuals that they were using very interested in it it seems like it's coming out soon and it just got me thinking uh there's a there's a rich vein that hasn't been tapped is alfred hitchcock's work for video games i think kind of interesting yeah yeah the concept of suspense mm. yeah vertigo was a fantastic film i think that in general the the xbox and bethesda showcase i mean i don't own an xbox and i'm very sad that they have purchased bethesda so i can't play their games anymore especially <laughs> games like wolfenstein and doom uh, but I think they did a fairly good job with their with their showcase. It was, I think, one of the most conventionally E three showcases. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. <laughs> I watched such a showcase. It's like trailer after trailer after trailer, and always this. I'm so glad that they didn't do a, a, like an audio announcement of this like console launch exclusive thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like world premiere. It's like every two seconds. But this time they only did it in writing. I find that a very good stylistic choice because it doesn't rub it in that much. Uh, and they, <laughs> <laughs> they did have some interesting things to show. But I must say, I it, 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 I can't, like, I miss Sony. It, I'm, I, I gladly admit I am a Sony pony. But yep, same here. For me, E3 just doesn't feel right if there's not, like, this this extremely successful but at the same time very strange uh, company like Sony that has you that sits you into a, a theater where someone performs a 40-minute opera while showing completely unedited <laughs> God of War <laughs> gameplay material you know <laughs> yeah I just miss I just miss such moments yeah there is a there is a weird theatric quality to them and uh I think we we got we got some some tastes of uh, maybe Sony adjacent things, but yeah, it is it, you do feel their absence um, without those <laughs> those weird events that they put on. Definitely, the yeah. king of weirdness in the domain of the current E3 was surely Nintendo. I, I really yes. like their Nintendo Direct showcases. I find them I find them really charming. I must say, you just they're just so so on brand for what Nintendo stands for. And I, I really appreciate that, even though a lot of games are not really for me. But I, I just, for example, I found it really funny that Nintendo does something like, you know, they, they, have, this, they have this cooperation, they have this deal with Ubisoft for Mario and Rabbids. Uh, which is this? <laughs> yeah. Which is this tactical tactical game? Which is in itself quite a weird creation, uh, but very popular and and surely looks like a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I and I'm very yeah. excited for this sequel that they announced at the Ubisoft showcase, Mario and Rabbit's Sparks of Hope. Looks really cool. However, uh, before the Ubisoft showcase happened, Nintendo leaked. <laughs> Nintendo leaked the game. <laughs> it's like, wh why would you do that? Like, leak your own game? 
it's yeah. that is truly something and i don't think i don't think they have even taken it down it was it's it was online hours before the showcase on the nintendo eShop, and i think they just decided to leave it up <laughs> like that doesn't matter anyway i almost wonder if it's just a deliberate decision to keep mario plus rabbits the weirdest thing in the world you know there's no rhyme or reason to anything that happens around that game so yeah we're gonna leak our own game and we're gonna leave it up and uh, then ubisoft will have to pick up the pieces <laughs> <laughs> it is it is really strange but it comes out in 2022 and i'm looking forward to it what i'll definitely skip on what nintendo also announced is the you know it's the the 35th anniversary of the zelda series and they announced this yes. game and watch device um have you ever had a game and watch no i never did um but i've i've seen just in retail stores you know big box retail stores the game and watch consoles that uh that that this is like where it just seems like you you had said before we were recording that it's uh it's a way to sell you know these old games to a new audience in a very kind of almost kitschy kind of way because yeah. the game and watch is very kitschy it is it's this a little bit like slightly unwieldy handheld device that as its name already suggests, has usually like one game on it. This one has three on it. And at the same time, it displays the time. And on, right. the, on the original Game & Watch devices, they were produced by Nintendo. You could even like, you could set a timer and such things. You can actually use it like a watch. And they are going to release a brand new Game & Watch system, which includes The Legend of Zelda, the 1986 version. The 1987 version of Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link, and the 1993 version, The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening for Game Boy. All games of which are obviously available in much better quality by now, in, you know, remaked and remastered versions. But now you can play it on a little Game & Watch thing, at least you can in November, on November 12th, and it costs a hefty $50 to do so. It reminds me of, um, are you familiar with the Disney Vault? Disney Vault? Yeah. So back in the 90s and the early 2000s, Disney had this thing that they called the Vault. And they would say, they have all their movies, and they would say, we're opening the Disney Vault, and Pinocchio is available on VHS for a limited time before it goes back in the vault. <laughs> and they would only sell it for a particular time. And I, I get this distinct feeling that Nintendo is kind of feeling the same way about their properties. And, yeah. and instead of instead of time, it's uh, <laughs> it's whatever media you're actually playing it on. So yes, you can have the original Zeldas, but on a Game and Watch, <laughs> they do that. They do that. I think they that's a very deliberate move by them, also to you know de-release this uh, Mario 3D remaster yes. thing with Bowser's Fury attached, which they which was only available for a limited time, and then they just took it off. Even though you could have easily just kept it, you know, for people to download. Uh, but but they didn't do that, and in the same way, they produce intentionally limited quantities of uh, the mini SNES and such things, you know. Because obviously, it's just like with the Game and Watch. This thing, as much as I have absolutely no interest in buying it, there are pe there are a lot of people who collect these things and to take who take great pleasure in that, and that's all good for them. I'm you know I'm really happy when someone can get their hands on these things when they really care about it. But it's going to be a rarity. And these things are going to rise in prices so quickly. They're going to go up on eBay for like double the price, three times the price very quickly that same weekend that they release. So I think that's just part of also of Nintendo's strategy and another step in immortalizing themselves. 
<laughs> I think that's really it. I think it is the the collectibilization of yeah. Nintendo products. Yeah. Well, I think speaking of Nintendo, we would be, I think, very remiss if we didn't talk about the trailer for uh, Breath of the Wild 2. Yeah. Um, which is very exciting. And I also, I'm also very intrigued by, I don't know if you caught this interview stuff on, but they actually said that if we were to reveal the title, it would give away the plot of the game. Mm. And so it's just Breath of the Wild 2 for the time being. They're keeping it very close to their chest. Um, but we got to see some gameplay and it showed, uh, some new abilities that Link has. Link has, uh, in keeping with the current Japanese tradition, um, of role-playing games, Link has lost an arm, it seems like, and has gotten some sort of tool. So, um, I think the, the one thing that from a storytelling perspective that I could glean tangibly from the, the trailer was, um, there's a, there's a a definite moment where Zelda is taken by something. And I realized that I, I really enjoy breath of the wild, but she's, she's always locked away from the start. And I feel that this trailer has provided an inciting incident where it didn't exist in breath of the wild necessarily. So Zelda has actually been kidnapped. You have to go and rescue her. And, uh, I think obviously it's a Zelda game. It'll be, it'll be worth talking about. I think so too. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Link can now soar through the skies. I think that was the most like uh, important important aspect or the, the thing that they that they showed off the most. That now they include the skies. My brother Matt, uh, who is a bigger Zelda fan than I think anyone on the planet, um, we were talking last night about the trailer, and he had said how he'd been following, uh, you know, theory crafting for Breath of the Wild too, and everyone was thinking there was a huge. Uh, portion of the internet who were thinking that, um, wow, they show off under the castle a lot. I wonder, I bet this game is going to be totally underground. It's all going to be tunnels and, and the dirt. And then he was laughing because it's like Nintendo said, you thought it was underground here back to Skyward Sword, everybody. (laughs) Uh, Nintendo always intriguing. Well, I think, um, there were obviously a lot more showcases. We're not going to address them all. We're not going to talk about all of the announcements. Um, I've, I did find it overall, I would say, an okay E3. I felt a bit detached from it, which is weird because I've never been to, like, never physically actually been to E3. So for me, it shouldn't really matter whether it's a pandemic or not. But still, it just it just isn't quite there yet. And I do think that while it might be a wish for some for E3 to return to form, we see that more and more events spring up revolving around it. Like this, the Summer Game Fest that Geoff Keighley uh, hosted. Uh, we see various different conf- conferences and showcases pop up, mostly led by publishers directly, such as Sony. I think that it won't ever be this kind of E3 that it was five or six years ago. But it's still, it's worthwhile watching if you if you can skip on some things like an hour-long Verizon ad <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and such things. You know, if you if you watch it selectively, Selective showcases, then I think it can be great pleasure for many years to come. I think, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that it's um, it's worth talking about in terms of as an event, because yeah. it's something that, you know, it really did start off as kind of like a dishwasher convention. And somewhere around the early 2000s, it just, it became like a, kind of like what, I guess, like what Comic-Con is today, where it's just these 
you know, media companies showcasing what they've been working on. And I, I agree with you, Stefan. I think that there is something distancing about people not actually being there when mm. you're watching these trailers. So I hope that um, as we keep getting out of the pandemic, that we do have more of those events where people can get together and feel that community a little bit more. Because I, I think people have felt its absence. Absolutely. Well, what do you think, dear listeners? Did you feel something lacking about this E3? And what do you think its future might be as this pandemic will hopefully come to a slow crawling end uh, throughout uh, yeah, the latter course of this year? Anyhow, thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoy this show, then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate. Feel free to leave us an Apple Podcasts review. We really need more of those. Follow us on social media or send us an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com, especially when you are an E3 representative and very much interested in hosting a panel with with a terrible fate. <laughs> All right. I man. should also I should add, we didn't forget Elden Ring. Aaron will talk about it. <laughs> Yeah, we talked about that. We spoke about that a little bit last week as well, right? We did. Because yeah, that was, so I, I'm sure. Yeah, that was just before our recording last week. Elden Ring. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about that a lot when it comes out. I can see that coming. <laughs> All right. Then That's enjoy the right. week and talk soon. Mm -hmm.